Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. Before we get stuck into this week's episode, I've got a great offer for you from We Are One Composites. If you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you'll know I've been riding We Are One wheels for years now. I've always been a fan of what they do and how they do it, and last week they've yet again demonstrated just how awesome they are by permanently reducing the price of their rims and wheel sets, as always, putting you, the customer, first. So not only can you have wheels that are made with love and care from scratch right there in Kamloops, Canada, which ride insanely well, are super durable and well supported by the team that made them, but now you can save even more money with their reduced retail pricing and a very generous 15% off that, especially for downtime listeners. That's right, for the month of August, We Are One are generously offering downtime listeners 15% off all their wheel sets, rims, and their depackaged bar and stem. So whether you want their new convergence wheels they're still very awesome revolution wheels or they're the package bar and stem now is your time you can get 15% off those reduced retail prices until the end of August 2023 by using the code downtime August 2023 at weareonecomposites.com that's downtime with a capital D no space then August with a capital A no space followed by the number 2023 at weareonecomposites.com please note you must enter the code at the very final stage of the checkout process on the confirm order page if you're enjoying the podcast, then there's a few things you can do. First and foremost, share the podcast. Maybe that's telling your friends about the show, recommending a specific episode to them that you think they're going to like, or sharing the episodes on your social media. If you find that the podcast provides you with some value, maybe you've learned something that's helped your riding or your fitness, maybe it's got you stoked to go riding or to come back from an injury, or perhaps it's just a little something to pass the time when you can't be riding your bike, then it'd be awesome if you were able to do a little something in return to help the podcast continue and improve by setting up a small regular donation via my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. A massive thank you to David Freener, Morgan Shah and Johannes who joined that list of lovely patreons this week also if you want to represent the podcast then there's downtime t-shirts sweatshirts and hoodies available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop if you want a little more downtime in your life then you can join my newsletter where i'll provide you with a bit of behind the scenes info on the podcast interesting bits and pieces from around the mountain bike world some mini reviews of products that i've been using and like partner offers and more you can do that over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter Otherwise, don't forget to follow the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode by hitting that button in your podcast app now, or there's buttons for all the major platforms to help you over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. All the links for all of that are in the show notes for this episode on downtimepodcast.com. All right, Ali Jameson is the man behind the Transavoir and Enduro 2 races. However, despite living what on paper for many of us would look like the dream, life hasn't all been plain sailing for Ali. As he prepares to launch an awesome new event, the New Zealand Mountain Bike Rally, Ali joins me to chat about his journey from full-time engineer to full-time mountain bike guide and event organiser. Along the way, Ali has been diagnosed as bipolar taken on the French government over their guiding laws, been bankrupt and much more. This was a frank and open conversation that covers the highs and lows that life can bring. Please be aware that this episode does briefly discuss suicidal feelings. All right, without further ado, here's Ali Jameson. Ali Jameson, welcome to the Downtime Podcast, man. How are you? You're saying you've literally just come off the mountain from a day's guiding. Yeah, that's right. I have. Um, I ran in the door about twenty minutes ago, so I'm still here in my in my uh, guiding shirt. Well, it's not my guiding shirt actually. It was given to me by the uh, by the Brazilian guys I've been guiding this week, which was which was pretty nice. But that kind of tells you what the week was like. We got into shirt swapping at the end of the week. <laughs> so yeah. 
was like, it's fun where he's gone a hill. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, man. Let's um, let's wind the clock back and give people a bit of background. First off, just tell us a little bit about how mountain bike came into your life. Like, where did you grow up? Are you from the northeast of the UK? Yeah, that's right. I'm from a uh, town called Shiremore, which is, uh, for those who know the metro, it's a stop on the metro. But other than that, it's <laughs> just a little, little town, uh, not not far from Newcastle. Um, I grew up there for you know my whole uh, well my whole life basically uh, up to the age of eighteen. Um, you know I was uh, the, the kids on my street ha- had BMXs um, and uh, we joined in with that. You know the anyone of my generation probably remembers turning a milk crate crate upside down and then putting a plank <laughs> of wood against it and that was a jump. You know? Yeah, we were doing all that um, and then. Um, yeah, pretty lucky actually. Um, one of the guys across the road from me was was a big um, road cyclist, or his family were a big road cyclist. And uh, I actually forget the guy's name, but there was a famous guy from the northeast, like a pioneer in mountain biking, who who was kind of um, who uh, was kind of familiar with road, and then became a mountain biker. I wish I could remember his. Was it Jason McCroy? Might might be the name. Oh yeah, but... yeah, it would be Jason McCroy. Yeah, JMC. Uh, yeah. So um, my first mountain bike was kind of like his three times handoff or something through these guys across the street it was it was called an orbit frontier um so this is just you know me and my mates around in these riding these bikes across the farmers fields out the back of the house really not nothing more than that but this was like a fully rigid uh it, w- it was the bee's knees because it was reynolds um steel tubing i think 531 was the uh was the brand and at the time I thought I was the the mutts nuts because I had a, a Reynolds 531 <laughs> um, and um, yeah but I mean I really got into mountain biking when I went to Sheffield Uni um, that was just a great place and at that time and this is the era of uh, Steve Pete and Tracy Mosley who both were from Sheffield so um, this is when they were really coming through the ranks and Sheffield being on the door of the Peak District is a great great place to go riding so um, I took my uh, Orbit Frontier um, Reynolds steel tubing, fully rigid bike, and I remember that. So by this point, I thought I was a bit of a mountain biker, but I I only really ridden it around, um, you know, the, the 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 forest trails of the northeast. Um, I took it out in the Peak District, and it had those those really old school like road style front forks that kind of like thin and sort of curved forwards. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, and I went for a ride in the peaks on, and it's pretty rocky. And I remember finishing the ride and these these forks that started off bending forwards actually bent backwards in the wrong direction. Oh, <laughs> so I was like, mm, think think it's time for an upgrade. But um yeah, that was my that was really uh, where I sort of got into biking properly and haven't looked back really. Awesome place to do it. Yeah. And you um you were at Sheffield studying mechanical engineering, I think. How how did that like interest in engineering uh where did that come from? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think it was cars, actually. Uh, I've always been a bit of a car fan. And one of my friends growing up was uh, a mechanic. And um, he was he worked in a local Alfa Romeo garage. But, um, yeah, I guess, you know, I'd, I lived close to a place called Whitley Bay, which is a bit of a, um, used to be a bit of a, a like, a, like a black bull of the northeast. And uh, the, the escort cozies would be cruising the one-way system, and as, as a teenager, I would, you know, be wowed by these by these cars. <laughs> so um, 
Yeah, so that's what inspired the engineering, I think. I, I thought that um, if I went to study mechanical engineering, I could come back and bolt the table charger onto all of my mates' cars and, <laughs> and be the cool kid. I, I, I guess that's where it started. Um, so, yeah, and uh, and of course, it was through mechanical engineering um, that I met um, my mountain biking friends as well. It just, there seems to be this connection between engineers and, and mountain bikes. So uh, a lot of my mates at uni who I lived with were also keen bikers and um, that just really fed back on itself and we spent a lot of time skipping lectures and, and going riding, to be honest, which was no bad thing. Yeah, sounds like a decent plan. And um, that it was at Sheffield Uni that you became friends with Ash Smith, now of like Trans-Provence and Stone King Rally fame, I guess. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Um yeah, me and Ash we studied together, and we ended up um, sharing a house together in the certainly in the fourth year of university. The last year we we were living together. To be fair, um, like Ash and I are, are still mates now. Ash doesn't live far from me out here in uh, in France; he uh, just lives around the corner. But um, I, I, to, to be fair, uh, I think without meeting Ash, perhaps I would have ended up living a more conventional lifestyle. I would have gone into my engineering career and, and probably stuck with it. Whereas Ash um, kind of kind of is a very close, possibly best mate of mine. It kind of showed me that um, he, he wasn't this kind of character. He was going to just do whatever, you know, whatever his dreams wanted him to do. And uh, I was a bit more hesitant, but then knowing Ash, um, kind of like, well, if he's doing it, then, you know, why, why can't I? It was kind of like that, really. Plus, plus, Ash was my, to be honest, Ash was my first real proper introduction to the French Alps. Um, okay. Ash's, Ash's dad had a, had an apartment in uh, Val d'Isere and we'd, we'd go out there during the, the study breaks and go riding. Um, I mean, this is like way back in the, in the late 90s, would be like normally thumbing a lift up the mountain um, if we could. <laughs> And then you're riding back down on these like dodgy, you know, V-braked hardtails. Um, I think one of the, looking back, one of the craziest things we probably did was we we decided to enter the Mega Avalanche um, in the early 2000s. Um, and there's pictures of us somewhere. And like, we're there like with these, I think I had a rigid bike with like 90 mil um, suspension on the front and V-brakes, and there we were doing the Mega Avalanche. And, well, I, I wouldn't do that now, put it that way. <laughs> no, that's not the place for that bike, eh? That's awesome. So you ended up, you, you qualified from university uh, with your engineering degree. And then did you did you go straight into Ford, or was there this engineering bursary? Like, how does all that fit in the timeline? Yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's a good point, that. Um, so I was um, I was pretty academic, to be honest. You know, at uni, I, I always did well, Um Academically, uh, I came out of Sheffield with a with a first class masters. Uh, so, um, and I was actually sponsored through university by Ford Motor Company. So, okay. um, <clears throat> every summer I was uh, working at Ford. Uh, the summer break, I was I was working at a different place, um, and you know I thought that's where my my future lay. Um, I knew that mountain biking was like a real passion of mine, but I didn't really think. It was a way to earn money, and I've got. I had quite a traditional upbringing, so you know, you just you think you you study hard, you get a good qualification, you go and work for a for a blue chip company. Um, that's what I did. Uh, I was on the management scheme, um, and I was kind of working my way up. But I was, 
but I was spending like most keen mountain bikers, you know, um, any spare holiday that I had, I was either off to France or, um, or uh, I mean, I was living in London by now in Essex, actually, um, which which isn't renowned for its amazing mountain biking. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I was just driving back to Sheffield every weekend um, to go riding, and um, but then I got this this bursary um, through the engineering council to go and study French. Um, so they basically luckily paid for me to take like a three month sabbatical to go and study French. So I, I chose to study in Annecy, which is just a be- beautiful place, great mountain biking and just round the corner from, uh, from where I am now. And, uh, at the same time, Ash was basically around. So basically, yeah, I mean, you can imagine what ha- actually happened. I skipped most lectures and <laughs> me and Ash were meeting up, uh, going riding in the, in the Savoie. And, um, yeah, that, uh, well, what happened then was, I guess we were, um, so I was, you know, this time I was still focused on my engineering career, but um, we started to organise trips out to the Alps just for our mates, really. And uh, we're doing that more and more, and then mates of mates wanted to come, and then mates of mates of mates, and then it was kind of like, why don't we try and, you know, make this a business? A business? But I think in the early years, we were charging... I mean, you'd have to count for inflation, but I think it was only something like £350 for for a week's holiday, including all food, chalet accommodation and guiding and transport and lift passes. You know, it wasn't a business. We were just having a bit of fun, really. And uh, that carried on for a number of years. Um, yeah. And F- Ford is where we cross paths, right? Like I'd heard rumours sure. of... Uh, this guy at Ford who was somehow also managing to run a mountain bike business in the French Alps uh, through, through various <laughs> friends that rode that kind of were aware of what you were doing in the early days of, of trail addiction. And uh, yeah, I remember I remember vividly like meeting you in a control room, I think, for some kind of noise and vibration testing that we were doing. Because yeah. you had a really, you had a cool job there, right? You were in the calibration team, I, which like a lot yeah. of people aspire to get in a role in there. There's a lot of travel and you know, a lot of fun stuff in the, in the calibration teams. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I do, I'm so pleased that we've caught up again because I remember that meeting too. Um, and, uh, I suppose back then it must've been kind of surreal from your side. Cause here I was, you know, like fairly by that point, you know, reasonably senior engineer doing some, um, pretty serious stuff, but yet it was well known that I was, you know, taking as much time off as I possibly <laughs> yeah. could, like really stretching the boundaries. Sometimes it was up to three months a year I was taken off to be in France. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just juggling the balls. But um, yeah, but I, I think the reason I was in limbo for so long is that I actually really loved my engineering job too. I was, I was pretty lucky there. And that was pretty much my dream job, being, being a car uh, enthusiast. Um, you know, uh, in calibration. So my job was, I, I became a specialist in turbocharging. So um, that meant that I, I had to basically travel all over the world to, to the hottest, the highest, and the the coldest places on the planet and, and test cars, um, which wasn't the worst thing, really, because we used to go to some, um, well, you know, Pike, Pikes Peak in Colorado, um, Arizona, the Grand Canyon, uh, South Africa, all over Europe, but we spent a lot of time in Granada in Spain, which you probably know mm-hmm. is a great place for riding too. Um, so, 
And my, I have to say, I've got to, I've got to say this. I hope he's listening because I know he's also a mountain biking fan. But my my supervisor was a guy called Graham Brook. Uh, he's retired now, but uh, what a legend! You know, he um, he allowed me to basically I don't know, to, to take the mick quite quite, quite a lot um, <laughs> because he was also a mountain biker. Uh, so he let me get away with taking a lot of time off um, to pursue that passion. Um, and yeah, thanks to him, I was able to. Uh, you know, establish a bit of a, uh, let's say, an escape route into mountain biking without having to um, take the risk of, you know, quitting this pretty good career that I really enjoyed um, without having something already set up to step into. And so yeah. a lot of thanks to him and, and everybody else at Ford, actually, who who put up with um, my, my uh, you know, my, uh, let's say, uh, lack of attendance. <laughs> you did it you did it for a really long time like you yeah. basically had two jobs for how many years how how did that pan out it must have been super hard work i mean i know it's a passion but still yeah i mean looking back i wouldn't recommend it to be honest i i made myself pretty ill um because um yeah towards the end this is like let's say around 2011 2012 uh you know, I'd um, I would become fairly senior in Ford by that point. Uh, you know, had responsibility there, but I also had this uh, sizable um, mountain bike business uh, in the Alps. I together with Ash, uh, I, I guess I'd say um, I've never really found out, but I, I'd, I'd guess it was probably one of the biggest um, guiding companies uh, in Europe at the time. We, we we had you know about twenty staff working for us every summer. Um, yeah. Uh, so there was quite a lot to manage there. We had up to 50 customers per week and I'm doing this, uh, you know, in my spare time. <laughs> so it was, yeah, uh, yeah um, wouldn't recommend it, but but uh, you know, there, there we are. Um, I think looking back, um, I know I, I will probably talk about this in a bit, but, uh, you know, I've, I've since been through um, some uh, bit, bit, bit of a, um, how do you put it, well, <laughs> Bit, bit of a breakdown, I guess you could say. And uh, looking back, I now understand that I was just, um, you know, burning the candle at both ends for too long. Mm. Um, to to the but, point where you were suffering like chronic pain and, you know, that like there was some serious side effects of this, right? Yeah, that too. Um, it's a bit chicken and egg. Um, yeah, I've had like pretty pretty severe back pain problems since since pretty much when I left university. Um, okay. Like I thought, I thought it was a, an injury related to, I used to be a fell runner and I had an injury there one time and I thought it's all just, you know, a physical injury, but 25 years later, I've, I've had every possible treatment and scan and, you know, um, alternative treatment as well. You could possibly imagine. I mean, I even, I even had a punctured lung through uh, acupuncture, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, no way. Wow. Uh, that's, yeah, okay. <laughs> but the point is that, um, uh, I've kind of accepted now that um, like mental health and physical health are, are not two separate things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anyone that's experienced that can pr- probably relate to some extent. Um, and uh, I think that I probably have got a bit of a dodgy back, but um, but uh, it's at least 50% uh, sort of stress-induced. Uh, and certainly lifestyle-induced. What, what I've learned is that I can, um, I can manage that 100% through lifestyle. Uh, and, and that was actually the one of the big drivers for me to um, to quit the office life. Um, I, I'm standing up right now. I, I basically don't sit down. 
if I sit down for too long, I get really bad back pain. But mm-hmm. rather than trying to, you know, look for some kind of operation or um, medical solution to that, painkillers, whatever, which I've tried, doesn't work. Um, you know, I, I actually, I was still going through this until even a few years ago. Um, I uh, I was in New Zealand and I started working again as a as an engineer in New Zealand. And uh, again, you know, being in the office, back pain came back straight away. Um, really, really severe. I mean... I don't want to labor the point, but it was, you know, like it was bad enough that um, that's all I thought about from the first thing in the morning to last thing at night was how much pain I was in. So I was seeing a, spa- a pain specialist down there and this guy just said to me, um, you know, we did all the scans, couldn't find anything wrong. He just said, well, I think he, he said, you know what the solution is, don't you? You need to, you know, you know what's, what it is. And I was like, yeah, but I can't just not work in an office. He's like, well, I think I think you need to just make that happen, you know. Um, and he's he's dead right. It's just um, so if there is anyone listening to this who's who's uh, either in you know um, mental anguish or physical anguish, um, uh, what can I say? For me, I'm lucky enough that I've kind of managed to realise that the, the constraints of conventional life mm. they're not hard constraints. They're just very hard to break out of, but. Um, yeah, for, for me, for, for for a long time, I was like seriously depressed um, for years because I just thought uh, I don't know what to do. I can't I can't just quit my job. You know, you don't you don't you just don't just go around quitting your job because then what are you going to do? Um, but um, you know, uh, sometimes it's, I guess what I'm saying is that without this this back pain issue, I don't think I would I would ever have actually been brave enough to quit my career at Ford. Okay. Um, I really don't think I would, um, but in the end, I had no choice, so I did. And um, you know, it's not—it's not been an easy ride, but it's been certainly worth it. Yeah, fair play. So, how, how long ago was it then that you you left Ford? It was 2013 um, okay. when I finally uh, decided to take the leap. Um, and it was kind of a, actually it was it was kind of also a bit like you know my amazing boss finally got to the point where he was like look seriously I just can't keep giving you like three months off all the time so but by that point I was pretty heavily committed to what I was doing in the Alps so um, so yeah I I quit um, that was the same year that I launched the properly launched the the Trans race as well yeah so for people that aren't familiar with that just give us a real quick overview of what Trans is because it's Similar to other things, but different in a lot of ways as well. Yeah, um, so that's uh, it's quite a familiar format now. It's a it was a it, it is a week long um, mountain bike enduro stage race uh, traversing the Savoie region of the Alps, which is basically the, the the main, as far as I'm concerned, the main part of the French Alps. It's certainly the part which is the most densely populated in, in terms of ski lifts, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, um, so similar to the Transprovence, again, uh, no, um, uh, I'm going to say that, to be just honest about it, blunt about it, uh, inspired by Ash's uh, Transprovence. Um, uh-huh. You know, it was kind of like my best mate's doing this, so if he can do it, well, uh, I think I can, uh, you know, match that. <laughs> and we also, um, we, we actually, a few years prior, had had a kind of a discussion about um, the concept of, Transavoir, or, or at least a multi-day stage race, and um, Ash, uh, props, perhaps to his wisdom, um, 
well, what I remember anyway, Ash might tell a different story. What I remember is that uh, Ash was like, look, this, we'll never get this to work in the Savoir because it's just too um, too many walkers, too many politics, uh, too much conflict. Uh, besides, Provence is amazing. So, you know, I'm just doing it down there. So, um, but I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to, I reckon that we can make it work in Savoir. I'm just going to have to take a bit more effort. So, um, so I persevered and uh, yeah, that, that, <laughs> That was the trans of war. Um, yes, uh, and um, we did that for ten years. In the end, it's, it's, it doesn't. The race doesn't happen anymore now. The last edition was uh, last year, uh-huh. but um, ten years and a lot of pretty crazy memories. Um, yeah, a lot of the times you really pushed things right up to the boundary in terms of like you know what's legal, what's feasible, what's safe. Uh-huh. Um, but always, I think always, always managed pretty well with that. Anyone who's done the race, I think, will, will know what I mean. Um, it was, yeah, pretty epic, I think. Um, and um, yeah, now, now I, uh, I just run. That's what I've been doing this week. I run guided tours, roughly along the same route. Uh, okay. Um, which is, uh, which I personally I enjoy a lot more than than organising the event. The, the event uh-huh. was an achievement, but but guiding is something very different. Uh, something which I think I'll always enjoy and never get bored of. Awesome. And it was around that time as well in life that you, you fell in love, right? You met someone special. Well, uh, <laughs> that's a story. That's another story. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Um, oh, how God. Um, I did. So I, I did. Um, I met someone um, actually at the same time in 2013. So I decided... Oh, I mean, there's so many different ways to explain this one, but yeah, I, 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 um, I did meet somebody very special when I was twenty in 2013. Um, she also helped me, inspired me to, um, you know, quit forward and uh, live my dreams. Um, and uh, actually, we it was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, having been single, pretty much, uh, you know, had girlfriends, but not, not nothing uh, more than a girlfriend. Uh, I you know, proposed to marry this girl um, pretty quickly at the same time as well. So so basically in 2013, I quit my job, moved to France, uh, got married in the same year and launched the Trans-Savoir. Um, and, and did a few other crazy things, like just randomly bought some expensive cars. And uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the reason why I'm laughing is because um, retrospectively, I also realized that I had a mental health problem at that time, but I didn't, didn't okay. know it. Um and uh, I've since learned that um, this is actually pretty um, characteristic of, of what people do when they have this particular problem, which you know, uh-huh. eventually I got diagnosed uh, several years later as, as bipolar. Uh-huh. And uh, I now understand that what was happening at that time was a bit of a manic episode, which okay. is where you just think that everything's amazing and uh, you're Superman and you can just, you know, you don't need to sleep. Um, you just do anything and everything and um, you do you crazy things. You chose well on the still. expensive cars front though, eh? You, cho- you got well, a Porsche, Porsche GT3. I did all right with that one, yeah. I did all right with that one. That actually turned out to be quite a good investment. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I also randomly went on a trip to New Zealand and, and then bought a house there on a whim as well. <laughs> as you do. You know, like, just as you do, but... But I need to explain that that's not normal. That's that I'm not this kind of guy normally. It's just that at that time I was that that was my persona that I mm-hmm. now take medication to control. <laughs> uh-huh. um, 
but at the time it was great. Um, it was great. Yeah, I uh, and I. Um, it's funny now. I've I've read about that. Uh, other other people who have been diagnosed with a similar famous people. I mean, who 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 are known to have a similar condition. Um, and it's said that um, you know some some of these people, like for example, Winston Churchill, apparently um, is thought to have been bipolar. Uh, no way. Um, uh, it's it's known that uh, you know he had um, periods of serious depression, um, but um, what's less talked about is the other side of that, which is which is mania. Um, uh-huh. That can manifest itself in many ways, but um, what I feel that I can relate to is um, having read a little bit about what was going on in World War II. Uh, there was certainly a point where any normal person. Uh, in his position, would have gone. Look, we we are beat. Basically, we we cannot win this thing. We're we're completely up against it. But somehow, he had this vision and confidence. He could see a way through that most people couldn't see, and he just stuck with it. Uh, and he enthused that as well on other people. And well, the end result. Well, we know what the end result was. You know, it, it worked out. Um, but it could quite easily not have worked out. Um, you know, when when every all the other countries uh, again, I'm, my, my history isn't great, but um, you know, summarizing very highly, you know, it was kind of a last stand in Britain, and then of course America uh, joined joined in as well, just at the right time. But um, just my interpretation of, of what I've read is that um, yeah, I, I believe that um, his vision to see things through that against all odds um, was at least in part probably yeah. due to this condition that apparently he, ha- he had. So um, Interesting. Do you think that, like, the characteristic has helped you with events like Transavar? Because, like, I mean, as Ash pointed out, I guess this isn't going to be an easy ride. Like, you're pushing a race through areas that are super busy, full of walkers, lots of access issues. Do you think that vision and then that, it like, intent, that strong drive to make it happen, do you think that maybe comes from some of that bipolar? Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm generally quite an ambitious person anyway. Um, but looking back, like I can think of some specific situations, um, certainly in the early years of the event that, um, you know, if I was in that position again now, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't push things through. Um, I was prepared to really push things to the absolute beyond really the limits of what was, was seen. Um, and take some pretty big chances just to try and uh-huh. deliver the vision that um, that I had for that event. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but then at the time though I didn't see it as a risk. Um, I think that's what's risky about my the condition that I had and still have uh-huh. is that um, you know unmedicated in the extreme. Some people um, can be so confident in themselves. You know, they walk into a casino and literally bet their life savings on on red or whatever. But it's not like they're going mental. They just believe yeah. absolutely. Then they've got they've they've cracked the system. You know, they they <laughs> can see something that someone else can't see. Um, or sometimes it's about um, confidence in in personal relationships. Uh, okay. You know, you can meet somebody. Uh, a stranger let's say and feel this amazing empathy and connection um which is great feeling it's like super positive feeling and what's weird is that um while it's just a bit abnormal from my side 
that normally the other side kind of relates to that too. If you're really empathetic and feel like you've got a great connection, yeah, then uh, you know that's normally a good thing. And um, but it, it can also lead to um, problems because you know you end up like telling a complete stranger, you know, your your life story or your biggest secrets <laughs> or like, well, in my case, you know, like falling in love with a complete stranger he just met in a bar and like, yeah, it's uh, you can get yourself into trouble as well. That's for sure. Yeah, fair play. So you've got Transfer up and running. You've got Trail Addiction, like, is the kind of guiding business. You also started Enduro 2 um, in a similar sort of time frame, which, again, is a, a, a fresh concept on multi-day Enduro racing. And I actually have a friend that raced one of the original, like, one of the early, I don't know if it's the first or second year, but absolutely loved it. Just tell us a bit about that as well. Well, yeah, that's actually something I'm, I'm really proud of. Um, it's um, you know, if, if Transavoir was um, you know, trying to be like the ultimate, the best, the the hardest, the you know the the shout about this um, kind of event, Enduro Two was supposed to be just something that was more accessible to to everybody. You know, much lower price point. Um, less elitist um more accessible you don't have to be some like double black diamond shredder to be able to you know even take part which is what transfer used to be um and uh, it's really taken off the, the 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 concept of racing in a pair um for me it's just absolutely what mountain biking is all about um i did some of the early EWS races um so that would have been like 2014 15 16 that was when literally Joe brought any anyone could just you know pitch in sign up yeah. rock up uh, off you go and you know enduro used to be for me uh known for let's say camaraderie um it was all about the liaisons and you know high-fiving and helping each other out and um, I think that um, now it's the sport has become much more professional. Uh, you know, UCI affiliated. There are there are rules. I understand why. It, it certainly has elevated the sport. And you know, to be a, to win, um, you know, an enduro world world series race now, you've got to be a a full on full time professional athlete. There's just yeah. no getting away from it. Um, but that that means that it's just no longer accessible to common man. I mean, you, you can't even. You, I believe you've got to qualify now just to just to even get close. Um, and I think that means that left a gap for, you know, let's just say the the working man's uh, enduro, and that's what enduro two is. It's more of a holiday, really, um, and and the racing in pairs. Um, well, that just changes everything. The, the, the uh, it, it, I mean, it really does. You, you've, you've got to do it to fully understand. But the, what we do is, um, so um, you get one timing chip between two people. Uh-huh. And we actually have manual um, start and finish gates. So it, it's an electronic system, but you, you physically cannot get a time until both riders have passed the line. Yeah. So you're not like averaging... Um, the best time you're not, you're not averaging the time between the two riders you just get one time for both of you and what okay. that means is that it's all race blind as well and what that means is like the best tactic is to let the faster guy go front and then like tow his partner down the trail yeah yeah, yeah. 
So you're always riding together with with an eyesight of each other. And what that means is like all the best parts about racing, you know, the times when you like have a sketchy moment or you do some kind of hero move and you want to tell everybody, but no one gets to see it in a, in a normal race. Like your mate's right there and he gets to see everything that, that happens. And so it means at the end of the stage, you know, you're, you're totally hyping as a team about what just happened. Yeah. And um, I'm just totally into it. It's, uh, I, I love it. So I think um, in the future, we're going to try and um, make that happen in a few different locations, really. Um, uh, we're nice. running one in Maribel at the moment, uh, mm-hmm. and that's going really well. Um, but definitely, if I can find some uh, some time to make it happen, I'd, I'd like to uh, expand that and make it more like a, world, a global series, if, if possible. Um, that I'm just really fun. behind it. Yeah, that's ace. Nice one, man. So all all at this point is well with the world, right? But then there was a, a fairly strong disagreement with the French authorities about UK guides working in France without a French qualification. I think, was it like a, a rule change on their side? Because it had been fine up to a point. What what went on there? Because it was pretty serious, huh? Oh, I mean, it was really serious. Uh, and look, uh, I have to say that it, it, regardless of the legal technicalities, um, it was still my own stupid fault for um, deciding to, you know, personally um, to, well, at the time I thought somebody needs to stand up to what I believed was um, kind of bullying um, from uh, French authorities. Um, and I believe someone had to do it. So, so why not me? Um, and um I mean, that was a bad decision, to be honest, because it, it, the outcome of that was um, many years of um, stress and uh, a lot of money and, um, you know, court proceedings and everything. But but um, at the time, that's that's what I decided to do. And um, I stuck with it for like for seven years. So so um, it started because, we, we you know, we had this guiding company in France and, yeah, we um, it was kind of we didn't really set out to start a gardening company. It just happened organically, as I as I uh, explained earlier. But um, before we knew it, we did have a, a, a sizable company in France. We were um, you know trying to do everything above board in terms of uh, uh, we had a, a, a company set up in in England. Uh, remember, UK was was part of Europe then, so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, open borders, uh, um, freedom of movement of labour is a is a is a founding uh, cornerstone of, of the European Union. So um, we uh, we were basically employing uh, UK guides to work in France. Now, I was aware that um, that this was kind of frowned upon in France, but initially we just thought, well, it's just a, it's just a few mates, probably not going to be a big deal. Um, but then over, over time we became a, a sizable company and that just drew the attention of the wrong people. So, um, yeah, one day we were kind of inspected or controlled by some local inspectors and, and they basically said, you, you can't employ uh, UK guides to work in France. You're going to have to basically sack all your UK guides and employ French guides instead. And um, I would have none of that for, for, for several reasons. <laughs> I mean, it was the principle that what I interpreted them as saying was uh, your English guides are not as good as the French guides. Okay. But at the time, I personally thought that my guides were literally the best guides out there. I mean, they were great guys. All of them were. 
they'd, they'd put in several years um, working for us and there was no way I was just going to, you know, cut them loose because some French inspector was coming poking around. So so we took legal advice and the legal advice was um, actually France has got no legal grounding to do this. This is against uh-huh. European law, fundamentally. Um, that's the legal advice that we took. And it, it wasn't just like me made it down in the pub. It was like proper, you know, a very expensive legal advice. And I actually became affiliated to a, a well-known ski instructor called Simon Butler. He was in parallel having the same fight with the, the French authorities about ski instructing. Um, I mean, I could go off. This is a seven-year legal battle, but let's just yeah. let's just cut to the chase. Um, I went I went to the local uh, court in France. Well, my, my mistake was that. Um, so in in France, it's different to the UK. You, you get your qualifications. Then you have to apply to the government to have a guiding license and they check your qualifications and then give you a license and then you can guide legally. Uh-huh. So in the UK, there is, there is no licensing. Uh, the exception is if, you, um, if you're uh, guiding children, but outside of that, there's no licensing. So you, you just you qualify as a guide and then you just, you just work straight away. Um, whereas in France, it'd be like passing a driving test but then not actually having a driving license yet. You haven't you hadn't put the paperwork in. And then, you know, sometime down the line, you're driving around and you've, you know you've passed a driving test, but you haven't got your actual license. And then the policeman pulls you over and says, license, please. And you say, ah, well, I haven't actually got my license, but I did pass my driving test. Is he like, mate, I don't really want to hear it. Just have you got your license or not? You know, it was kind of like that. Yeah, okay. And that's how it went in court as well. Um so uh, we you got in big trouble. Um, so we went to the, the local court, we went to the regional court, and in the end, I went to the Supreme Court in France, uh, and actually even to the European Court. Um, but, oh, I mean, I don't want to paraphrase, but the, the, the bottom line was they kind of agreed um, that uh, I sh- we should have had our guiding licences all along. But and in the end, I, I mean, I've got mine now, and I never passed my, uh, I never studied in France to be a guide. I, I got my uh-huh. guiding license based on uh, my English qualifications plus my experience of being as a guide. Yeah. Um, and that was the point I was arguing. But the, but they also, unfortunately, uh, and this is where I was a bit stupid. I'd still broken. We'd still broken the law because because whilst we should have had our licenses, we didn't. We, right. The fact is, we just didn't have them, and that's just black and white. And um, yeah, so that was uh, that's that's a criminal offence in France, and uh, I was in a lot of trouble. And the business and myself personally got a very very large fine. Um, so yeah, we're talking um, hundreds of thousands of euros here. Four right? hundred and forty thousand like... euros, um, which uh, obviously bankrupt the business. Um, and uh, it was um, it, it was a hard one because all the, all the while I had been assured by my expert legal team that this wasn't going to happen. We had to just keep on doubling down, and in the end, we would definitely win. Um, and in the end, we won on the point that they were arguing, but then they just managed to you know screw us anyway because the I think the bottom line is that well I mean this is 2017, so uh-huh. by this point Brexit had happened. 
So we were arguing about this this European technicality, which no longer applied anyway. I mean, yeah, it's it's the bottom line is it was my own stupid fault. It was, it's, what I should have done is just sort of my ego and found some kind of compromise. We employed four or five French guides and, you know, kept on my staff uh-huh. as well. Um, in the end, that's what I actually I did do, but it was it was too late by that point. I, I dug a huge hole for myself. And, um, yeah, there we are. So the, so the business was um, bankrupt, and um, that was a very hard time for me because that was um, – well, my life, my life's dream, and also I just felt like I'd let everybody down, um, and uh, and at the same time, you know, this is when really my mental health problems really came to the fore, and uh, well, I don't want to <laughs> give you the whole sad tale, but I, I went from you know in 2016 thinking I was a bit of a rock star to uh, 2017 bankrupt, um, literally, you know, li- li- liquidate us, turn up to your house, and just take away everything: your car, your bike. Man. Um, everything, you know, you, your wife also like drops you off at the mental hospital and then and then just leaves you. Uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty hard times, and I, I, I'm not looking for sympathy because it's possibly my own stupid fault. Um, but the end result was a really really dark place for me for 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 a long time. Um, but what came out of that positively was um was uh, a few things. I mean, it, it, somehow out of all this, I ended up in New Zealand, actually more stranded in New Zealand rather than there through choice. I was I was basically too ill to leave, which, which sounds funny, but I was so mentally ill that I couldn't, I didn't actually leave the house for more than six months. Um, oh. I was just like constant panic attacks. And, um, but I got some really, really great uh, support in New Zealand, both... Um, both from the mental health service and just from very kind neighbours who actually barely knew me. Um, That's amazing. And um, yeah, so I, I actually took a few years to kind of become, let's say, functioning again, able to leave the house, able to work, able to um, socialise normally. And, and by that point, it's like, well, New Zealand's kind of my home now. And I've met so many lovely, kind people. Um so that that's how I ended up um, attached to New Zealand, and um, and I also met uh, a new uh, uh, Gabby, my, my my partner in in New Zealand, who's absolutely amazing. And um, so so there we are. So, and so I so I now, but I, I've still got I still got the connection to France. I mean, I'm in France right now. So I've somehow found myself kind of bridged between New Zealand and uh, France, <laughs> which living the endless which, summer. Yeah, I know. Yeah, just tell um, us a little. So the the bipolar diagnosis then that came. So you were yeah, you effectively your ex wife dropped you off at the mental hospital, which is probably possibly one of the best things anyone could have done by the by the sounds of it at that point, right? Yeah, look, look, that, I, I don't want to be too harsh. I have to say that she had to she she lived through seeing me go from what she thought was a sane person to someone who is, I mean certified insane i was actually sectioned uh-huh. under the mental health act so um for her that must have been well i can't even understand how, how she how you would deal with that um and uh, so i don't i don't blame her at all but the bottom line is that that's what happened and it, that's what i that's actually what i needed um i needed because i was really in a terrible place 
Uh, and I'm happy to talk about it because um, uh, I think the, what I regret is that I just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to uh, like double down uh, on whatever I was doing. Um, you know, like just man up, get through it. You know, don't just if you're feeling anxious or depressed, it's just because you're weak. You know, like the typical like man's response. Um, what I learned certainly for me is that there is a point where if you keep on, keep on just like doubling down, don't, don't actually try to take a step back and realize like, what am I doing to myself? There's, there's a point where you can actually step over some kind of threshold. Yeah. Which happened to me. And it just, it was like one day I was just broken. I just woke up and I was like, that's it, basically. I am now completely dysfunctional. And it, there was no coming back from that for like two years. It's It was the most terrifying experience of my life. And anyone who's listening, I would just say, like, don't let it get to that point. I'm just very lucky that I did get the help that I needed because, um, to be frank, I'm not, I'm not sure I would have got that help in the UK. Uh-huh. And, and God, God knows what would have happened. Um, it, you know, uh, perhaps I wouldn't even be here now today. It's that serious. I don't, I don't think I'd be here yeah. today having this conversation. So I don't get all morbid on you. Like it, it, the, <laughs> just happy to happy to say that that um, that's how bad I was. Were there, yeah, were there early warning signs? Now, like, like, before you got to that point, like you say, that was like the threshold where it just was the undoing of you. Were there looking back now? Were there signs that? with everything you know today you would have picked up yeah. on like are there things people should be looking out for uh yeah like i mean <laughs> absolutely i mean first of all for me i was in a lot of pain mm-hmm. um then uh you know not sleeping um then towards the end um you know like just just lo- basically losing losing my completely losing my cool like you know getting to an argument getting to a normal situation where you'd be upset you'd be kind of like the road rage kind of scenario yeah yeah um but i'd be like you know road raging like you know smashing the place up like screaming at people um but just you know over not that much I was just going to dinner on and edge. gone cold or something like yeah it's not yeah I mean yeah. I, yeah but for me it was like I was just so emotionally like stretched the limit you know yeah the fact that yeah I, mean, I, think, I don't think it was I didn't got cold but that, that you know whatever it would be I'd be like I can't believe that this person has done this to me on mm. top of everything else I'm trying to deal with right now that's just not normal Every, everyone goes through yeah everyone gets stressed um, and and I still do I'm not, I'm not saying I I still definitely you know struggle but um, but I think what I perhaps realize is that I think if everyone's honest, really honest with themselves, I think everyone struggles with something. Um, For sure. Um, and I've definitely got a lot more empathy now of, of, with other people. Um, you know, uh, again, I would previously would, if somebody was um, down, down in the dumps, like down and out struggling with something, I would kind of judge like, you know, what, what, what are they so upset about? You know, what's the big deal? Um, now, I don't try and judge like what what is it that's making this person upset, and do I think that that's worthy of being upset about? Yeah, yeah. I don't think that anymore. I just think like, look, if a human being tells me I'm really stressed about this, I'm afraid, I'm stressed, 
whatever it is. It's like, well, well, therefore you are. You know, I, I believe you. Like, it's not up to me to judge what's stressful for you. Um, it's it's an internal thing. Um, yeah. And actually, I sorry, you just I just reminded myself that there is one thing for me which I definitely messed myself up about. Um, I, I had a lot of uh, psych, psycho, uh, psychology uh, sessions, by the way. Um, they call it ruminating. Now, uh-huh. I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but um, I used to think it was actually one of my greatest strengths. Ruminating is when you're just like thinking about a problem, you're turning it over in your head, um, you know, trying to find a way through or a way out. Um, ruminating is when you're just doing this on repeat. Um, mm-hmm. um, for me, what that meant was that you, you start to, if it's a bad thing, you know, let's say you're imagining like, a classic one would be, let's say you've got a boss at work that you just don't get on with. You hate the guy. He's just all, all girl, you know, like you just don't like them. They make your life hell. And you're like sitting there every night, you're thinking like, oh, I'd love to. You're imagining in your head like an argument where he says this and then you see you see that. And then he says this and then you see that. Before you know it, you've had like an hour's worth of like imaginary back and forth argument in your head which didn't actually happen at all. The other person clearly wasn't a part of it. It was all just in your own head. But yet you've still fully experienced those negative emotions that you would have experienced if you'd really had the argument. Yeah, yes, you still feel awful. Yeah, and you're just doing that to yourself. And that ruminating is is that, basically. Um, Yeah. For for me, um, I did it so much, you know, I was ruminating why why is why is uh why is my business failed why is my marriage failed just going through all the scenarios in my head like literally when i said that i was having panic attacks it was because i was just i was sitting in the house totally alone like 20 hours a day just ruminating reliving all the negative experiences and how i might have changed them but Mm -hmm. You don't solve anything like that. That's that's not taking action. That's just stressing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's so time would, with a psychologist that's helped you understand that and deal with that stuff, right? Yeah, I, I had a very, uh, again, an amazing, very patient psychologist, and um, she, she, I saw her for like for over twelve months. And as, as for me, it was also medication as well, which which I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not saying that's the same for everybody, but the combination of both. Um, and this psychologist was wonderful. Uh, she just, she basically just, first of all, I believed that I could go and see her literally forever if I needed to. She was never just going to say, you know, after three months, sorry, you're not, you're not, your time's up. This isn't working. See you later. Um, and for the first like six months, I just went in there once, twice a week and just said the same stuff every time, you know, my life's, a mess uh i'm never going to get better uh, you know I, just, there's no way out of this and just you know explain to her the same thing that i said the week before about why it's just impossible there's no way out and, and uh she would always listen and just kind of just just kind of like nudge me back towards the right direction uh-huh. and then which you would never like you know it was never it was never like telling me what to do it was more like suggesting you're doing it again, aren't you? You do realise you're doing it again. You told me this story last week. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I did, yeah, okay. And um, uh, and also she would remind me, 
like I would, you know, I'd be like, listen, that's it. Like I, I just, I'm panicking. I don't know what to do. And she'd be like, you do know what to do. What you need to do is go and do some exercise. Go for a bike ride. I can't, I can't go for a bike ride because if I go for a bike ride, how am I going to fix the problem that needs to be fixed? Just like yeah, but you can't fix the problem until you think in normally. So just go to the gym, go for a bike ride, and I and then, and I, th- I, I think I think everybody who rides a bike, I think knows that it's it's good for the mental health. Hundred <laughs> percent. I think that's definitely you know a common denominator for anyone who who rides bikes. Um, and uh, so yeah, so she just she just kept just kind of pushing me back in the direction, and I, I think you know very gradually. Um, you know, when I first went in there, I'd be like pointing at 90 degrees from where I needed to be going. And she'd push me, you know, she'd push me back. And then, you know, after, after six months, maybe I was 45 degrees from the direction I needed to be going. And so she'd just have to, she didn't only have to correct me a little bit less. And then, you know, by the end, she was just like, you don't need to come here anymore. And I was like, I think you're right. I don't need to come here anymore, do I? And, and that wasn't the end. That was just the beginning. But but yeah. that's how it worked for me. Um, so, uh, but yeah, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, the, the, go, go to a counsellor, go to a psychologist, I'd be like, screw that. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so as you're, as you're like changing <laughs> stance on this and your increased empathy for people's, you know, challenges, issues, anxieties, whatever... Has that have you seen people kind of open up to you? Have you had more of these like mental health based discussions with your friends and colleagues and people around you? Yeah, I mean, I'm somebody who who, who just talks a lot openly. I always have been. I think if I, I think actually that's probably what allowed me to get better because I wasn't afraid. Once I got the help, I wasn't afraid to just basically see exactly how I was feeling and 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 you know and ask for the help. But um, so because of that. Um, yeah, I think I, I do. It's quite surprising, actually, especially being being a guide. Um, I, I get to spend seven days with a small group of people. You know, I ride with them all day. Um, I often, you know, have, have a meal with them. Sometimes just spend the night in a, in a mountain refuge as well. So I really get to to quickly uh, know these people. And, and also, you know, we're sharing a good time. So people open up. And um, I think it also helps that, if they don't know my story, then um, they think that they assume that my life is just amazing. Cause what they think is, Oh, this guy just rides his bike on the best reels in the world all day, every day. Uh, and then, and then buggers off to New Zealand for the, for the winter, you know, <laughs> does the same again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. does the same again. So yeah, on the face of it, it sounds great. But then I know I sort of often mention, you know, a little bit of what's going on and, and I'm quite open to say, listen, my life isn't actually as sweet as, you might think it is uh, it's actually pretty tough sometimes uh, and then yeah it's funny how how many people um some people are just straight away other people um might you know kind of like subtly sit next to me on the lift when no one else is around and say listen uh i've never told anybody this but actually i think uh i'm suffering for you know, similar kind of things um so i'm happy to talk about it um and just would encourage anybody who's who's a uh, look. I mean, you've got to take responsibility for your own for your own problems. I'm not saying that um, life should be all uh, you know sweetness and nice. Uh, everybody has to deal with various things, but um, and 
of course, it's all very well to go and get help, but it's not that easy to, to find either sometimes. Um, certainly anyone in the UK, it's quite hard to get access to these things. Um, but uh, professional help is one side. There's also just acknowledging that you need to um, listen to your own body and your own mind and just don't keep on pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, I'm not saying you should just slack off and do nothing, but just um, listen to the, the cues that your mind and your body is trying to tell you. And uh, and for me, it was always like, well, I can't, I know that I, I don't like this, but I, I just can't change it. You know, I can't, I'm going to have to just deal with it. I'm going to have to double down. And that's that's not that's not really true, is it? Um, the, the, there's that age old uh, adage that your grandma used to tell you, which is like, as long as you've got your health, <laughs> you know, like I mean, literally, that is life's universal learning. It's pretty. If you haven't got your health, you've literally got nothing. Yeah. And if you've got uh, your health, and, there's not yeah. much more you need, eh? Like you can yeah. make things work as long as you're in a good form. And, and mental health is, I mean, you know, physical ailments. Again, like I don't, I'm not not a doctor, but certainly a lot of ailments are. There's not like the distinct line between mental health and physical health. That that is that is for sure. And I think yeah. I think modern medical science also um, kind of agrees with that. Yeah, hundred percent. So things are in a in a better spot, right? The the medication sounds like it's helped you get more of a balance between the you know the personas that bipolar can challenge you with. And uh, yeah. you've been pushing on and, uh, yeah, like you say, splitting your time between France and New Zealand, lots of guiding, but you've also got a new event that you've been putting together. And I spent a bit of time earlier in the week uh, trawling the website and was pretty much drooling by the end of it. It, sound, <laughs> it sounds incredible, mate. Tell us about yeah. the uh, the NZ Enduro project. That is true. Um, so, I mean, I can't, I can't gush enough about New Zealand. Um it's the place which has just helped me to to refine refine my passion for life. Uh, I found my love down there as well, and um, New Zealand as a country is just a place which I find fits with my persona very well. I just find it warm, friendly. Um, so somebody said to me that um, living in New Zealand is it's like being back in the eighties, like. <laughs> In both a good way and a bad, and a bad way, and I, I sort of know what they mean. Um, it's kind of like, you know, like if if the eighties was like Neighbours, the the, uh, the television program, where like you know it's this little community and everyone's like knows each other and everyone's friendly. Like that's how I feel mm. living in New Zealand is like. But the whole country's kind of like that. Um, it's small it is an enough. incredible place, yeah, for yeah. sure. You still leave your front door unlocked, all that kind of to- stuff. Oh, totally, totally. Especially where I live, yeah, it's great. Um, so, um, and and the riding there is also mind blowing. Like I ended up in Nelson, which is at the top of the South Island, because um, I uh, saw. Well, I can't even remember when, but I think it was like back in 2013, actually. So as, as well as everything else I was doing back then. Um, I went on, uh, it was actually a honeymoon <laughs> to Queenstown. It's probably the beginning of the end of my uh, my, my first marriage, actually. Yeah, honeymoon to Queenstown uh, with a wife who didn't ride mountain bikes. I mean, that's, that's not really going to end that <laughs> <Good> work. <laughs> and I actually ended up, here's a funny one, I ended up with um, Henry Quinney, who who now works for Pink Bike, yeah, yeah. Uh, living in my garage, Um 
my rented garage that was supposed to be like my you know my my honeymoon house but i had henry crinney like st- <laughs> staying there it was it was that kind of setup um anyway uh <clears throat> that went really well a good good season but um I went to Nelson actually before I left New Zealand because I wanted to go kite surfing, believe it or not. It's meant to be good for kite surfing there. So, but while I was there, someone said, Oh, there's some good trails. So I got a bike, went for a ride. And I was like, These trails are amazing. Like, these trails are more my kind of thing, like more um, like backcountry, like old walking trails. Um, and uh, I rode a trail called Peking Ridge, which is just. Uh, like this massive root fest basically just it's just out the back of town I just just loved it beach forest so I decided I needed to go back for another season in in Nelson just to check that place out and um, one thing led to the next I ended up buying a house and um, I've, I've been there for years so so um, I, I love the riding in that area and also the the mountain bike community there is amazingly strong the weather's great it's uh, it's kind of like a southern Spain kind of climate, uh, so it's basically sunny all the time. Um, you've got like amazing beaches right there, mount- mountains just behind the town, and um, to me it felt more. It, it well, it doesn't. It just is more of a like a normal town. I mean, technically it's a city, but it's only fifty thousand population or something. Yeah. Um, whereas whereas Queenstown is definitely it's beautiful, but Queenstown's a resort. You know, it's like it's a tourist resort. Nelson's a place where people actually live and have families and, you know, do normal life things. Um, but also, like, everybody there rides a bike, basically. It's just insane. Um, so, um, yeah, the, and the trails are great. Uh, so I was just like, why does, why have I never heard of this place before? I mean, uh, really, like, back in 2014, Nelson wasn't a place that maybe maybe actually Nelson there's a Nelson BC in Canada which I think was probably better known than Nelson New Zealand but whatever um so right from back then I had this like you know like vague pipe dream like wouldn't it be great to do like a trans savoir style event in Nelson around the Nelson area but nothing more than that really um and then um yeah you know, started to um, work towards that um, around 2017, 2018, 2019, maybe. Um, but I was busy dealing with all this stuff in France going on and I wasn't really very well. And um, and then COVID happened and, you know, mm-hmm. it just uh, a million excuses, basically, to why I never got around to it. But, but um, yeah, the, not this year, it's finally happening and I'm, I'm just absolutely blown away it's a so basically what it is it's a um it's my interpretation of the the very best of the the top of the south island of new zealand i'm especially excited because um it's you know it's not it's not very well known compared to queenstown and rotorua but like i I just honestly think it is at least as good as queenstown or rotorua in my opinion you know honestly better but uh, but that's quite a controversial thing and i'm sure that uh, there'll be a lot of feedback on that one um just if you like the kind of backcountry stuff as well as the mm-hmm. um you know purpose built stuff then nelson nelson area is the place uh, so i've put together a six day route um it's like a circuit circular itinerary um 
I mean, one day we've got the uh, day one. In fact, we're going into this place called the Wairua Gorge. I'm not sure you've ever heard of that one. This is the secret that? billionaire's like dream <laughs> yeah. bike park, right? Is it? I mean, that, is that, that open place normally? Yeah, that that place alone is like, come on! It sounds like some kind of crazy, um, you know, have I taken my medication today? Kind of story. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, um, yeah. it is actually open to the public now, but it was um, <clears throat> it was originally uh, this valley bought by uh, an anonymous billionaire um, from outside New Zealand, who just basically had so much money that um, he could just afford to buy an entire valley. Um, close it off completely and then employ, I don't know, I think it was about 20 guys who he brought in from all over the world um, to hand build like a dream bike park just for himself. Um, <laughs> I just, it's nuts, isn't it? And then, and then he um, <clears throat> just, you know, decided he got bored of it and just donated it to the Nelson Mountain Bike Club. Wow. Uh, so there we are so there we are um, and it really is a, a, a great place um, to go riding um, so that's we're in there for day one um, and um, yeah we're just doing a there's a lot of um, uh, trails on uh, dock conservation land department of conservation um, so yeah, they're, they're also great um, so it's kind of like it's not a national park, but it's it's sort of somewhere between national park and just like normal terrain. And the uh, we worked very closely with them to uh, to get access to some special trails, historic tracks, and uh, without um, you know obviously env environmental concerns are are, are paramount. Um, but they've they've been great, and we've we've worked out a plan there for, for, to get access to those trails. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, the, it's not really the be all and end all, but quite a key selling point about this particular event is that um, the way New, New Zealand is set up is that we we can we can throw in uh, you know a couple of heli drops, uh, a nice uh, beautiful boat uh, trip across this gorgeous lagoon, uh, probably with like dolphins jumping out of the water and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's just crazy. Um, we can do all that there. That's, that's just New Zealand for you. You know, it's um, it's the kind of place where, you know, if you try to do that in Europe, there'd just be too many hoops to jump through. But in New Zealand, they're just like, yeah, let's do it. Come on, let's do it. Yeah. This is going to be great. Um, so I'm pretty excited uh, to, to actually uh, make it happen. I just hope that, um, you know, I'm aware that New Zealand, it's a very long way to go for a lot of people. So, um, yeah, hopefully people can uh, can find the time and the motivation to, to make the effort. Um, yeah. we, we definitely can can guarantee a good time uh, when, when they come here. And, uh, and Nelson as, a, as, a, as an area is, uh, is just totally behind it. I think everyone who lives in Nelson is so happy about what they've got and they're just keen to share it with, with others. So, um, yeah, I've had great support from the council, from the club, uh, you know, from from local businesses. It's uh, it's been really, really uh, encouraging. So yeah, um, that's cool to see. Excited about that. Yeah, and a two to one party to pedal ratio. It says on the website. <laughs> I like the sound of that. So there's a there's a huge amount of descending for the amount of pedaling you put in, right? Oh yeah, yeah, at least two to one. Yeah, um, I just figure that um, if you want to pedal up hills, you can do that in your own time. You know, like if you, if you come all the way to New Zealand, you just, you just want to do the good stuff. So, yeah, we're maxing out on. Um, we've got these fleet of um, like Toyota Land Cruisers, uh, twelve seaters, 
that can go off road so we can uh, you know we can get to some pretty pretty cool out there spots and we're going to be heavy on the shuttles uh, and a few helicopters as well so yeah i think the uh, we're looking at the stats of you know probably around uh, an average of around let's say 3000 meters of descent and uh, one th- less than 1000 meters climbing on the pedal so it's, it's actually more like three to one but i'd rather yeah. under promise and uh, over, over deliver that's a per day stat right per day yeah yeah per day yeah 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 so how many big, spots are there days. um yeah well we, we're uh, we've got 80 limited to 80 spots uh, in the classic kind of all included package um so that's uh we're not doing tents in this event uh i think i'm just kind of a bit bit past it um, a bit too old for staying in, in a tent to be honest. <laughs> I'd rather have a proper bed. Plus, it helps with the logistics. And also, again, where we're staying, we've got some really cool base camp locations, um, kind of like outward bound centers, kind of kind of things, um, you know, dormitory style, but in really nice locations. Um, so we've got 80 spots all included with, with food and, and the whole the full works. But then um, you know, I I don't want to be too elitist. Um, the uh, you know we're looking at three thousand six hundred uh, New Zealand dollars, so that's about you know about two thousand euros, a bit under two thousand euros for that package, and that's a lot of money. So um, rather than you know make it exclusively for people who've got you know that that kind of money to throw around, we've got another forty slots available which is we're calling self-supported so that's kind of everything that everyone else gets in the rate in the race the um the, the helis the the shuttles the the riding but it's for somebody um so like a new zealand local guy who's got a camper van who can actually you know um can follow the the circuit in a camper van perhaps have somebody come in with him driving sort his own food out and uh, that's about half price Okay. To in for that so um so in total we've got 120 spots nice and what when do spots go live oh that's uh yeah it's uh 20th of august so that's a okay. sunday i believe um yep yeah, so um quite excited about that i mean i'm kind of holding my breath a bit but uh the well i've seen how many people have signed up to the uh, to the email list and it's 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 a lot so <laughs> so uh hopefully if those people are actually keen to actually sign up then then uh, yeah we're going to be a all go yeah, it's a it's a pretty attractive proposition mate to be fair the website that like i said left me drooling and thinking about the riding so yeah, yeah. it sounds like a pretty well, you'll have pretty to come down one. get you down there uh, I would love to one day, mate. Podcasting yeah, from ne- the sidelines. <laughs> still never ridden in uh, in New Zealand, so it's, it's on the list amongst quite a few other spots. But yeah, one day we'll get there. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we should uh, we should start wrapping up. Um, okay. We've got our final four questions that we've asked pretty much everyone. Um, okay. But if, bef- before we do that, like you've obviously been through this big um, mental health journey, for want of a better word, like. I think, I mean, you probably already offered some pretty sage advice, I think, but any any way of wrapping that up? Like, is there any advice you would give to anyone who might be feeling like they're struggling a bit on that side of things? Um, okay, I mean, I'm just going to be totally frank here. Again, got to qualify this. This is not medical advice, it's just my of personal course. advice from my personal experience. 
Uh, I would say that there's a tendency, and I think everyone can understand what depression is these days. I think people, you know, it's just, um, I think it's gladly more talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, antidepressants are, are readily prescribed these days, and I think they perform a very useful function. Um, I did take antidepressants for quite a long time, and it, and they helped me um, at at some point. But but I'll, I'll qualify that by saying that um, uh, I think if you're in that position, I think I would go and see a doctor and um, don't be afraid to take the medication. But um, but you need uh, a kind of uh, what happens next plan because um, what I think happens a lot is that people take uh, antidepressants to, you know, as like an emergency kind of release, but they don't fix the fundamental problem that caused them to be depressed yeah. in the first place uh, and without that you're just going to be stuck on antidepressants forever and uh, that's that's not a solution basically um, and I don't think the modern health system uh, really addresses that because unfortunately the, we don't have the resource um, to get the support that I got the you know the psychology and all that um, you won't see a GP he'll prescribe you some antidepressants and you're out the door um, and you'll feel better in the short term, but you've, you've really got to you, you t- take the take the medication you need it. But but at the same time, don't be like, okay, that's great, that's just everything's good now. Back to what I was doing before, that ain't gonna work. You've yeah. got to really, if you're that bad that you need to take antidepressants, you really do need to sit up and think, right, I've got to change something here. Um, I mean, I can't stress that enough because you don't want to end up where I was. It's really really not a, g- a good place to be. Yeah, fair play, man. Sound advice. We'll move on to four seemingly unimportant questions after after that, man. But <laughs> we, we're asking to most people, so we should hit them up. The first one: If our listeners had one hundred and fifty pounds to spend to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go spend it on? One hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah, not a lot. Oh, geez, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm gonna have to. Okay, I'm gonna have to sort of dodge that question a little bit by saying that um, I would not have. I would not have. Um, okay, okay. I, I can't really figure this correctly, but the, the best thing I think you can do is get rid of your rear derailleur. <laughs> That's quite a quite controversial one, but you, you can't get rid of your rear derailleur without buying a gearbox bike. Um, um, that's what I currently ride, and I am okay. so happy. Um, with that, but that, that's quite a, that's quite a that's going to cost you more than 150 pounds to start with. But in the long run, um, save it's you. just a different. It's yeah, it'll probably save you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are you riding yeah. then? What bike have you got? Uh, I'm riding currently riding a, a Z Road. Um, okay. Kiwi brand. Yeah, uh, yeah. so Kiwi brand, and um, yeah, love it. Um, it it's all. Um, I mean. Gearboxes, it, it's kind of a love it or hate it kind of thing. Um, for me, as a guide, um, you know, riding a lot of miles, just uh, and also racing. I mean, this year I've done a lot of racing. I've, this year I've raced the Trans BC, the Trans NZ, and the Trans Tasmania. And I took that bike, and it's just, you know, there's no chance of me ripping a mech off, snapping a chain, uh, you know, yeah. uh, never have to deal with like, you know, jump, jumping mech. And all the bonuses of um, surprise bonuses, for example, of uh, it's a belt drive my my, my bike, and um, it's silent. I didn't realise how much it upset me that derailleur like flapping around all the time until it wasn't there anymore. 
Um, so I really love it. I mean, it's a bit heavier and um, uh, I have to say that I don't find it to be any less efficient on the pedals. Um, I really, I really don't, um, but it is heavier. Um, but then, you know, when, when you've got tires that weigh over a kilogram per tire, yeah. uh, you know, what's the big deal? Um, yeah. So that would be my recommendation. Okay, fair comment. Next one. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Oh, that's a good question. Jesus, that is such a good question. Uh, I would, because it sounds so cheesy, but I would say fo- follow your dreams. Like, you know, for me, I didn't want to work in an office and be an engineer. I just thought that that's what I had to do to be a success. Um, and I, I actually love my engineering job, but um, but I love my current job more. And, uh, and I'm better at it as a result. Um, I think if you can find something that you actually genuinely enjoy, it doesn't mean that every day is going to be like, you're going to be springing out of bed, you know, like with, with birds tweeting on your shoulders and having a lovely time, but it, you can be motivated. You, you, you kind of, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I think if you genuinely are passionate about something, then you're always going to do a better job than, than just doing it just because you kind of have to like working for the man kind of thing. Um, Look, that's so easy to say, but um, yeah, that would be that would be my advice to my sixteen-year-old self. Uh, you know, so, I wasted a lot of time um, following a career that I didn't really want to do. Sounds pretty familiar, mate. Yeah, solid advice. All right, third one: if you could have a coaching session from anyone, past or present, who would it be, and uh, what would you want to learn from them? <laughs> oh, uh, coaching session. Um, well. Yeah, it, it, for me, it's it, it. Steve Pete is basically like the the ultimate legend. Like he just he just is. Yeah, you know, I was in Sheffield when he was up and coming. Uh, you know, he just still is to me like the Godfather. And um, I'd want him to teach me how to be a much of a large legend that he, that he <laughs> at least outwardly appears to be. It just seems to be like just such a good bloke. You know, um, knows how to. He's clearly achieved a lot in his time, but he also seems to have had a lot of good times uh, whilst he was doing it. That's what I'd yeah. want. Yeah, yeah, it seems to have a good balance in life for sure of enjoyment and uh, achievement. It's pretty, pretty impressive. All right, last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Oh, me? Um, I try every day and uh, do a weight session in my home gym or go to a public gym. Um yeah, for me, uh, it's, you know, I, I might be riding my bike eight hours a day, but uh, for me, um, doing some weight resistance, uh, keeping the body moving like that is absolutely invaluable. Fair play. Yeah, not a bad thing at all. Well, it's been uh, it's been really interesting catching up. It was many, many years ago that I last saw you uh, in Ford in Dunton. Uh, a lot has obviously happened since then, but it's good to see you in a good spot. I'm super excited to see how the uh, the new NZ Enduro goes for you. If people want to follow like you and the races and bits and pieces, like where should they be looking? What websites are we going to send people to? Yeah, well, uh, so there's there's nzmtbrally.com. Uh, that uh, same same with uh, social media. We've got a, we've got a you know at nzmtbrally. And if you're keen on uh, Enduro 2, then again, that's just enduro2.org or at enduro2.fr. Okay. 
Got it. Perfect, man. I'll stick some links in the show notes so that's nice and easy for people to uh, get to. But yeah, it's been really nice catching up, man. And uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep enjoying it. And uh, yeah, Great. thanks for telling your story. No worries. We're going to keep in touch and I am going to drag you to New Zealand, New Zealand uh, within the next five years. That's it's going to happen. Right. It's a deal. <laughs> nice All right. Cheers, Ali. All right. Cheers. All right. That's it for this episode with Ali. I really hope you've enjoyed it. A massive thanks to We Are One Composites for supporting this episode. We Are One are generously offering downtime listeners 15% off all wheel sets, rims, and their depackaged bar and stem. So whether you want their new convergence wheels, their still very awesome revolution wheels, or their depackaged bar and stem, then now is your time. You can get 15% off until the end of August 2023 by using the code DOWNTIMEAUGUST2023 at weareonecomposites.com. That's downtime with a capital D, no space, then August with a capital A, no space, followed by the number 2023 at weareonecomposites.com. And don't forget, you need to enter that code at the very final stage of the checkout process on the confirm order page. Also, don't forget, if you want to help support the podcast, and the best way to do that is by heading over to patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast and setting up a small regular donation. I know times are tough right now, so if that doesn't work for you, then no worries. But if you are able to support, then it is very much appreciated. We've also got t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Make sure you're following the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app now or by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also get a little bit of extra downtime by signing up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. All right, that's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. (laughs) 